Thank you so very much. Please be seated. How many of you heard some preaching this week? Okay. How many of you are prayerful that I am sensitive to the fact that you heard a lot of preaching this week? Yeah. Everybody that I told, I'm sticking around, I'm preaching the chapel after leadership conference, they would wince. Oh, that's a tough chapel. But here's what I know about my plight in life. The last time that I was scheduled to preach a chapel here, it was finals week. I have offended someone somewhere to keep standing in front of you when you are at your wits end. But I do want to help you this morning. And if you have your Bibles, I hope that you'll join me in Matthew chapter 20. All of us are aspirational. That's a good thing. The mere fact that you are here this morning indicates that you have some aspirations to serve the Lord. The fact that you are striving in your studies and you are attempting to grow in the Lord indicates that you want to do something great for God. We are told to dream big. We serve the God of the impossible. I desire to be aspirational, but what I must have is scriptural parameters for my aspirations. I can never allow my aspirational mindset to slip into carnality. And I want to help you with that this morning. As I was reading recently, I came across this quote. We live in a very proud and egotistical generation. People pushing themselves, promoting themselves. No society can survive pride run rampant. Yet, systematically, that's exactly what's happening. All social relationships are at a stress point because everybody is screaming for their own rights. Everyone is consumed, it seems, with self-glory, self-esteem, self-promotion, and pride. Unfortunately, that mentality has crept its way into the church and has twisted our view of service. In fact, the writer concluded, at this moment, we know little about sacrifice. We know very little about pain or suffering. All we ever want to do is eliminate all of that so that we can get on to fulfillment. And that mentality needs to be confronted. And in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus will confront that very mentality. The reality of every one of us in our natural state is that we are dominated by self. We are dominated by selfish interest. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul tells us, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, we were also subordinate to this cosmos, this world system. We were subordinate to the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself. That we were subordinate to the passions of our flesh, to the desires of our flesh, and to our mind. In our natural state, we are dominated by self. 
And here in Matthew chapter 20, this prideful ambition rears its ugly head. You need to understand that for the third time to the disciples at this moment in Scripture, Jesus has announced His arrest and His resurrection. He's done it prior in Matthew 16 and in Matthew 17. In the previous announcements, Jesus had not specified exactly how he would die, but now he adds the reality that he would die via the cross. In verse 17 of chapter 20, we'll pick up, and Jesus going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. This is heavy information that Jesus has just articulated to the disciples. I believe that it is possible that Jesus, even in this moment on the road to Jerusalem, took the disciples to the 22nd Psalm and let them in on that prophetic announcement and is telling them, that is about me and this is what is going to happen. Now let me set a little further context. In chapter 19 of Matthew, Jesus encounters the rich young ruler. He talks to the rich young ruler about eternal life and discipleship. At the conclusion of that interaction, just so that you're aware of the mindset of the disciples, we read in verse 27, Then answered Peter and said unto him, that is Jesus, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? At the conclusion of Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler, Peter has one question as the mouthpiece of the disciples. In summation, it is this. Jesus, what's in it for us? We have forsaken everything and have followed you. What is in it for us? That mindset still permeates the disciples as Jesus pulls them aside and delivers unto them the reality of mocking and scourging and crucifixion. The reality is stunning to me. As Jesus delivers this heavy information, the disciples are too wrapped up in themselves to really understand what he is communicating. In stark contrast to what Jesus has just told the disciples, I want you to note what happens next. Now, dive into Scripture with me for just a moment. I've already referenced this is the third time that Jesus has told the disciples about his crucifixion. The first time he did it was in Matthew chapter 16. The first time that Jesus told the disciples about the crucifixion, here's what we read. Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Peter corrects Jesus, and Jesus then tells Peter, as we know, get thee behind me, Satan, what you're thinking about and what you want out of life and the direction that you are heading is not the same thing as the mind of God. The second time that Jesus tells the disciples about his crucifixion, 
Listen to the disciples' question in Matthew 18.1 in response to that. At the same time that Jesus has told them about his death, came the disciples unto Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus interacts with the rich young ruler and Peter wants to know on the behalf of the disciples what's in it for us. Jesus tells the disciples about the crucifixion and Peter says, not so, Lord, don't talk like that. You're here to establish a kingdom. Jesus reiterates to them the crucifixion and the disciples are asking, by the way, when you set the kingdom up, who's actually going to be the greatest? And now, as Jesus has announced to the disciples this third time that he was going to be crucified, notice what happens in verse 20. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? What can I do for you? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. In stark contrast to the heavy announcement that Jesus has just made, James and John put their mother up to asking Jesus for the right and the left-hand seats when he establishes his kingdom. It is stunning to watch the disciples process Jesus' teaching in personal fashion. Though it is no more stunning than how we process the truth of Scripture. We are dominated by self in our natural condition. We are controlled in our natural state by selfish ambition. And in this moment, James and John are obstinately holding on to the idea that Jesus has come to establish his earthly kingdom. Plainly stated, they are thinking like the world. The result of this inquiry for the right and the left-hand seat in the kingdom produces indignation in the other disciples. I don't think the other disciples are righteously indignant in this moment at the audacity of the request for the right and the left-hand seat. I genuinely believe they are indignant that James and John think they're the two that deserve it. Perhaps they're indignant that they didn't ask first. This selfish ambition is damning. This selfish ambition is divisive. That's what we're grasping in this moment. I'm surprised when I get to verse 22 and I see Jesus be gentle in his response. Note verse 22, but Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of? And to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And flippantly, they say unto him, We are able. We can do it. Now, it's evident in this moment that James and John are the one that put their mother up to asking Jesus for the right and the left-hand seat because when Jesus addresses the error, he does not address their mother. He goes straight to James and John and he addresses them. 
In fact, in the very verbiage here, when he says, ye know not what ye ask, it has the same feel as when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Just replace ask with do. That's the sensation here. Incredibly, despite their many visible shortcomings in Christ's service, James and John have no misgivings as to their worthiness or power to endure anything that might come upon them as they answer, yes, Lord, we are able. It's a sad thing to actually read. Here's a reality. When we are dominated by self and we are controlled by selfish ambition, it always results in arrogant overconfidence. When we are dominated by selfish ambition, it always results in arrogant overconfidence. When they said we are able, they had no idea of the humiliation or the suffering, of the degradation, and mark it down, even the martyrdom of which Jesus was speaking. The reality is such that they would indeed suffer. James would be the first that was martyred by Herod Agrippa. John would be the last during the reign of Trajan. If you could ask them, at the moment of their execution, do you remember way back when you told Jesus you were able to endure this? I honestly think they would hang their head in shame and say, please don't remind me of how dumb I was. Please don't remind me of how ambitious and self-dominated I was. No, I wasn't ready then. I'm hanging on barely now. If we're controlled by selfish ambition, it always results in arrogant overconfidence. Not only that, it breeds ugly competition. We saw that as they were moved with indignation. In short, the focus on self defeats the cause before it ever gets underway. In our natural state, we are dominated by self. In response to this egregious request, Jesus tells us this. Though we are dominated by self, we are demanded to serve. Note what Jesus says in verse 25. But Jesus called them unto them, him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them. And they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. I suppose the hypocrisy of James and John is my hypocrisy as well. In fact, three times in those verses, among you is written... In my estimation, scripturally speaking, among you then implies all disciples of all generations, all believers. Jesus Christ is insisting on a distinct contrast between kingdom citizens and the world. Jesus says in here, you are to serve. And the word he uses, bites. It is the word doulos, which I know you are familiar with. We say servant, and it takes a little sting out of it. It's to be a slave. 
And the listeners at this moment would have comprehended what Jesus was saying. It was a part of their everyday life. In fact, historians tell us that there were as many as 600,000 slaves living in Rome alone during the time of Paul. When slaves were written about, it's established that they were owned. They had no control over their own labor or their bodies. They were property to be disposed of by their master. They were treated as objects. And Jesus, in response to their desire to have the chief seats, says, No, you must instead be a slave. There is a demand to serve. When you break it down, you grasp it simply. Whoever will be great among you, let him be your servant, your minister. Whoever will be chief, let him be your servant, your slave. Do you want to be great? That's what Jesus is asking. Do you really want to be great in the kingdom? Then you need to be a servant. The word there is diakonos. You need to be willing to wait on tables. And if you want to be first, if you want to be chief among all of the greats, then you need to be willing to be a slave. I began by saying all of us are aspirational. And Jesus is setting the course for our aspirations. Because he is saying plainly to us, if you want to be truly great, be willing to wait on tables. And if you want to be prominent among the great ones, be a slave to everybody. That is so counterintuitive, is it not? What Jesus is saying is, listen, there are people who run vacuums in local churches. There are people who change diapers in local churches. There are people who run buses in local churches who are doing the great work of God. The majority of the work of God in the local church happens away from these spotlights. And though it is good to be aspirational and to dream big dreams, we must let Scripture set the parameters and grasp this. My biggest dream is to be willing to wait tables. My great dream is to be a slave to everyone in my proximity. If you really want to be great, that's what Jesus demands. He caps it by saying, by the way, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but rather to minister. In effect, who do you think you are? That you can mandate service from someone else. Who do you think you are that you are above diakonos or doulas? Who do you think you are to have aspirations for greatness outside the parameters of Scripture? Listen, in our natural state, we're dominated by self. It's a battle for every one of us, and it's a daily thing. Scripture tells us that we are, in fact, demanded to serve. And the only way to do that is to be dead to self. In very short chrono chronological order, Jesus is going to have the triumphal entry. in a ride into Jerusalem. I know that you know all about the triumphal entry. Josephus tells us that the population of Jerusalem during Passover week would sometimes swell to two to three million people. I happen to believe hundreds of thousands of people line the street and are shouting Hosanna. 
It is such that the chief priests and Pharisees' summation is the whole world has gone after him. We want to crucify him and they want to crown him. At this moment in time, at the conclusion, some Greeks come up to Philip. Philip goes to Andrew and Philip and Andrew go to Jesus and say, Jesus, some Greeks want to see you. And in response to that, Jesus tells us the secret of service and it is dying to self. Let me just read this to you and save you a moment of time in John chapter 12 and verse 23. Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. If I am in my natural state dominated by self. But according to the words of Jesus, there is a demand that I serve. I can only accomplish that if I then die to self. And three things Jesus says in these verses jump out at me. He says, number one, you must die to bear fruit. In effect, you have to die to selfish ambition. He then says you have to hate your life to keep it. You have to die to self-preservation. And thirdly, he says, you have to serve to be honored. You have to die to self-glorification. He said in verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it beareth much fruit. Truly, Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth. The illustration is simple. When you hold a kernel of wheat in your hand, you cannot see the plant on the inside. But when that kernel is cast into the ground, it is entombed, it dies. And as one writer said, there's a resurrection plant inside of there. But if it doesn't die, it does not produce that fruit. Jesus, in response to the Grecians' desire to see him, says, I will indeed bear fruit, and it will include you Greeks. But in order for that to happen, I have to die. That's the illustration. Can I tell you quite simply this? It takes faith to say, Lord, here am I, bury me. You have to give God the right to determine what kind of plant you are and where you are planted. I am from Washington, D.C. No one likes people from Washington, D.C. I know that. We're, we're called the Mid-Atlantic. The people in the north don't want us and the people in the south don't want us. We're just the Mid-Atlantic. Everybody thinks it's just creeps and weirdos and power-hungry people in Washington, D.C. That's home to me. I had no awareness of what Charlotte, North Carolina was. In fact, I did not know people wore shoes in North Carolina. How many of you think that of North Carolina? I knew they had sweet tea. I knew they had Bojangles chicken. Really? Really? Nothing to be proud of, I've got to be honest. I did not know that I would spend my life in Charlotte, North Carolina. 
But the reality is such, a week ago, my wife and I were walking into a store and there was a map of Matthews, North Carolina, and I said to her, does it ever dawn on you that we have spent 19 years in Matthews, North Carolina, someplace we'd literally never heard of, in a state we probably would have never dreamed to live in, and we're at 19 years here? And she said, I can't believe it. And then I got really spiritual, which does not happen that often. I said, you know, I'm working on this message and here's the reality. This is where God saw fit to plan us. I may aspire to other things, but I have to die to selfish ambition and say by faith, Lord, here am I, bury me. You pick the place and you pick the plant. Not only that, Jesus is teaching you must die to self-preservation. In verse 25, he said, He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Three times in there, life is used. The first two times, it's a different word than the third time. The first two times that it is used, it is a word that refers to the life of the mind, the emotions, and the will. The third time that it is used and it is joined with the word eternal, it is in reference to divine life. What Jesus is saying is this. He who loves his own mind, he who loves his own emotions, he who loves his own will more than he loves my plans and my ambitions and my interests will destroy himself. But he who loves eternal life more than his own will and his own ambitions and his own emotions, he gets it. We must die to self-preservation. Strong words are used, love and hate. It is plain that Jesus is telling us we've got to love his plan and we've got to love his eternity more than we love this world. In fact, we must hate it in that we esteem it less than that world. Die to self-preservation. Lastly, as Jesus states in verse 26, die to self-glorification. He says this, if any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Twice, he says, any man. It's an open invitation. It's a general invitation. Strict in the context, it includes you Greeks who want to see me. And by the way, Greeks, you were right to want to see Jesus. And in a few days, Jesus is going to be quite something to behold. And Jesus says here, literally, if any man serve me, let him follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be. It's harder than it sounds. You want to know if you're a servant of Jesus Christ? Just respond to what Jesus says. Do you go where Jesus goes? Where I am, there will my servant be. That's just how it works between a master and his servant. It's easy for us to think, yeah, I want to be with Jesus. I want to participate in the miracles. I like all of that, but you've got to stay married to the context. He is saying, you want to be my servant. You go where I go. And in this context, where is he heading? To the cross. You want to go with Jesus there? Because we know from Scripture, when he was arrested in the garden, they all scattered. The beloved followed close by, and Peter went to the porch and kind of listened in. But when even Peter was pressed, he said, no, I don't know him. (laughs) I don't know the man. Say, yeah, you sound like one of them. He curses and swears an oath. I don't know him. We all think we've got this figured out. 
Do you want to be where Jesus is? Can I tell you in plain language, it's going to get very difficult to stick with Jesus. Increasingly harder to stick with Jesus. But Jesus says something in there. My servant, him will my father honor. The word honor, it is clearly in the future tense. It's a word that means reward, compensate, esteem. Die to self-glorification. Be willing to be a servant, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, going where he's going. And Jesus said, Jesus said, future tense, that kind of individual, my father will honor. He'll esteem him. He'll compensate him, referencing the Bema seat. In our natural state, we're dominated by selfish ambition. Yet by scriptural rules, we're demanded to serve. And the only way we can ever serve is if we die to self. If we die to selfish ambition and say, Lord, here am I, bury me. You pick the plant and you pick the place. And you pick the pace. We die to self-preservation. We get our eyes off of this temporal world and all of these temporal measuring sticks and we simply do what God asks of us. We love his world and his ambitions more than we do our own and we die to self-glorification. Who cares who gets the credit? Who cares who gets the pat on the back? You go where Jesus goes and serve him and future tense, you will be honored. You will be compensated. You will be esteemed. The only way to ever be great is to be a slave. And the only way to ever be a slave is to die to self. And that's a big, tall order that, that requires effort every day.